0: chapter eight of la ba by jory karl Heismanns, translated by Keen wallace this librivox recording is in the public domain next day his ferment had subsided the unknown never left him but she kept her distance her less certain features were effaced in mist her fascination became feebler and she no longer was his sole preoccupation the idea suddenly formed on a word of des hermies that the unknown must be chantelouve's wife had in fashion checked his fever if it was she and his contrary conclusions of the evening before seemed hardly valid when he took up one by one the arguments by which he had arrived at them then her reasons for wanting him were obscure dangerous and he was on his guard no longer letting himself go in complete self-abandon and yet there was another phenomenon taking place within him he had never paid any especial attention to hyacinthe chantelouve he had never been in love with her she interested him by the mystery of her person and her life but outside her drawing-room he had never given her a thought now ruminating about her he began almost to desire her suddenly she benefited by the face of the unknown for when durtal evoked her she came confused to his sight her physiognomy mingled with that which he had visualized when the first letters came though the sneaking scoundrelism of her husband displeased him he did not think her the less attractive but his desires were no longer beyond control in spite of the distrust which she aroused she might be an interesting mistress making up for her barefaced vices by her good grace but she was no longer the non-existent the chimera raised in a moment of uncertainty on the other hand if his conjectures were false if it was not madame chantelouve who had written the letters then the other the unknown lost a little of her subtlety by the mere fact that she could be incarnated in a creature whom he knew still remote she became less so then her beauty deteriorated because in turn she took on certain features of madame chantelouve and if the latter had profited the former on the contrary lost by the confusion which durtal had established in one as in the other case whether she were madame chantelouve or not He felt appeased, calmed. At heart he did not know, when he revolved the adventure, whether he preferred his chimera, even diminished, or this Hyacinthe, who at least, in her reality, was not a disenchanting frump, wrinkled with age. He profited by the respite to get back to work, but he had presumed too much upon his powers. When he tried to begin his chapter on the crimes of Gilles de he discovered that he was incapable of sewing two sentences together. He wandered in pursuit of the marshal and caught up with him, but the prose in which he wished to embody the man remained listless and lifeless, and he could think only patchily. He threw down his pen and sank into an armchair. In reverie he was transported to Tiforges, where Satan, who had refused so obstinately to show himself, now became incarnate in the unwitting marshal, to wallow him, vociferating in the joys of murder. For this basically is what Satanism is said durtal to himself the external semblance of the demon is a minor matter he has no need of exhibiting himself in human or bestial form to attest his presence for him to prove himself it is enough that he choose a domicile in souls which he ulcerates and incites to inexplicable crimes then he can hold his victims by that hope which he breathes into them that instead of living in them as he does and as they don't often know he will obey evocations appear to them and deal out duly legally the advantages he concedes in exchange for certain forfeits our very willingness to make a pact with him must be able often to produce his infusion into us all the modern theories of the followers of maudsley and lombroso do not in fact render the singular abuses of the marshal comprehensible nothing could be more just than to class him as a monomaniac for he was one If by the word monomaniac we designate every man who is dominated by a fixed idea but so is every one of us more or less from the business man all whose thoughts converge on the one idea of gain to the artist absorbed in bringing his masterpiece into the world but why was the marshal a monomaniac how did he become one that is what all the lombrosos in the world can't tell you encephalic lesions adherence of the peer martyr to the cerebrum mean absolutely nothing in this question or they are simple resultants effects derived from a cause which ought to be explained and which no materialist can explain it is easy to declare that a disturbance of the cerebral lobes produces assassins and demonomaniacs the famous alienists of our time claim that analysis of the brain of an insane woman disclosed a lesion or a deterioration of the grey matter and suppose it did it would still be a question whether in the case of a woman possessed with demonomania the lesion produced the demonomania or the demonomania produced the lesion admitting that there was a lesion the spiritual comprachicos have never resorted to cerebral surgery they don't amputate the lobes supposed to be reliably identified after carefully trepanning they simply act upon the pupil by inculcating ignoble ideas in him developing his bad instincts pushing him little by little into the paths of vice and if this gymnastic of persuasion deteriorates the cerebral tissues in the subject that proves precisely that the lesion is only the derivative and not the cause of the psychological state and then and then these doctrines which consist nowadays in confounding the criminal with the insane the demonomaniac with the mad have absolutely no foundation nine years ago a lad of fourteen felix lemer assassinated a little boy whom he did not know He just wanted to see the child suffer, just wanted to hear him cry. Felix slashed the little fellow's stomach with a knife, turned the blade round and round in the warm flesh, then slowly sawed his victim's head off. Felix manifested no remorse, and in the ensuing investigation proved himself to be intelligent and atrocious. Dr. Legrand Dussault and other specialists kept him under vigilant surveillance for months and could not discover the slightest pathological symptom and he had had fairly good rearing and certainly had not been corrupted by others his behavior was like that of the conscious or unconscious demonomaniacs who do evil for evil's sake they are no more mad than the rapt monk in his cell than the man who does good for good's sake anybody but a medical theorist can see that the desire for good and the desire for evil simply form the two opposing poles of the soul in the fifteenth century these extremes were represented by jeanne d'arc and the marshal de Now, there is no more reason for attributing madness to gilles than there is for attributing it to jeanne d'arc whose admirable excesses certainly have no connection with Vesania and delirium all the same some frightful nights must have been passed in that fortress said durtal he was thinking of the chateau de tiffauges which he had visited a year ago believing that it would aid him in his work to live in the country where gilles had lived and to dig among the ruins he had established himself in the little hamlet which stretches along the base of the abandoned donjon he learned what a living thing the legend of bluebeard was in this isolated part of la vendee on the border of brittany he was a young man who came to a bad end said the young women more fearful their grandmothers crossed themselves as they went along the foot of the wall in the evening the memory of the disemboweled children persisted the marshal known only by his surname still had the power to terrify durtal had gone every day from the inn where he lodged to the chateau towering over the valleys of the crume and of the sevres facing hills excoriated with blocks of granite and overgrown with formidable oaks whose roots protruding out of the ground resembled monstrous nests of frightened snakes one might have believed oneself transported into the real brittany There was the same melancholy heavy sky the same sun which seemed older than in other parts of the world and which but feebly gilded the sorrowful age-old forests and the mossy sandstone there were the same endless stretches of broken rocky soil pitted with ponds of rusty water dotted with scattered clumps of gorse and fruze copse and sprinkled with pink harebells and nameless yellow prairie flowers one felt that this iron-grey sky this starving soil empurpled only here and there by the bleeding flower of the buckwheat that these roads bordered with stones placed one on top of the other without cement or plaster that these paths bordered with impenetrable hedges that these grudging plants these inhospitable fields these crippled beggars eaten with vermin plastered with filth that even the flocks undersized and wasted the dumpy little cows the black sheep whose blue eyes had the cold pale gleam that is in the eyes of the slav or of the Tribad, had perpetuated their primordial state preserving an identical landscape through all the centuries except for an incongruous factory chimney further away on the bank of the sevres the countryside of Tiffauges remained in perfect harmony with the immense chateau erect among its ruins within the close still to be traced by the ruins of the towers was a whole plain now converted into a miserable truck-garden cabbages in long bluish lines impoverished carrots consumptive spread over this enormous circle where iron mail had clanked in the tournament and where processionals had slowly devolved in the smoke of incense to the chanting of psalms a thatched hut had been built in a corner the peasant inhabitants returned to a state of savagery no longer understood the meaning of words and could be roused out of their apathy only by the display of a silver coin seizing the coin they would hand over the keys for hours one could browse around at ease among the ruins and smoke and daydream. unfortunately certain parts were inaccessible the donjon was still shut off on the tifauge side by a vast moat at the bottom of which mighty trees were growing one would have had to pass over the tops of the trees growing to the very verge of the wall to gain a porch on the other side for there was now no drawbridge but quite accessible was another part which overhung the there the wings of the castle overgrown with ivy and white-crested viburnum were intact spongy dry as pumice stone silvered with lichen and gilded with moss the towers rose entire though from their crenellated colorets whole blocks were blown away on windy nights within room succeeded glacial room cut into the granite surmounted with vaulted roofs and as close as the hold of a ship then by spiral stairways one descended into similar chambers joined by cellar passageways into the walls of which were dug deep niches and layers of unknown utility beneath those corridors so narrow that two persons could not walk along them abreast descended at a gentle slope and bifurcated so that there was a labyrinth of lanes leading to veritable cells, on the walls of which the nitre scintillated in the light of the lantern like steel mica or twinkling grains of sugar. In the cells above, in the dungeons beneath, one stumbled over rifts of hard earth. In the centre, or in a corner of which, yawned now the mouth of an unsealed oubliette, now a well. Finally at the summit of one of the towers, that at the left as one entered, there was a roofed gallery running parallel to a circular foothold cut from the rock there without doubt the men-at-arms had been stationed to fire on their assailants through wide loopholes opening overhead and underfoot in this gallery the voice even the lowest followed the curving walls and could be heard all around the circuit briefly the exterior of the castle revealed a fortified place built to stand long sieges and the dismantled interior made one think of a prison in which flesh mildewed by the moisture must rot in a few months out in the open air again one felt a sensation of well-being, of relief, which one lost on traversing the ruins of the isolated chapel and penetrating, by a cellar door, to the crypt below. This chapel, low, squat, its vaulted roof upheld by massive columns on whose capitals lozenges and bishops' croziers were carved, dated from the eleventh century. The altar-stone survived intact brackish daylight which seemed to have been filtered through layers of horn came in at the openings hardly lighting the shadowed begrimed walls and the earth floor which too was pierced by the entrance to an oubliette or by a well shaft in the evening after dinner he had often climbed up on the embankment and followed the cracked walls of the ruins on bright nights one part of the castle was thrown back into shadow and the other by contrast stood forth washed in silver and blue, as if rubbed with mercurial lustres, above the sevres, along whose surface streaks of moonlight darted like the backs of fishes, The silence was overpowering. After nine o'clock not a dog, not a soul. He would return to the poor chamber of the inn, where an old woman, in black, wearing the cornet headdress her ancestors wore in the sixteenth century, waited with a candle to bar the door as soon as he returned all this said durtal to himself is the skeleton of a dead keep to reanimate it we must revisualize the opulent flesh which once covered these bones of sandstone documents give us every detail this carcass was magnificently clad and if we are to see gilles in his own environment we must remember all the sumptuosity of fifteenth century furnishing we must reclothe these walls with wainscots of irish wood or with high warp tapestries of gold and thread of arras so much sought after in that epoch then this hard black soil must be repaved with green and yellow bricks or black and white flagstones the vault must be starred with gold and sown with crossbows on a field azure and the marshal's cross sable and shield or must be set shining there of themselves the furnishings returned each to its own place here and there were high-backed signorial chairs thrones and stools Against the walls were sideboards on whose carved panels were bas-reliefs, representing the Annunciation and the adoration of the Magi. On top of the sideboards, beneath lace canopies, stood the painted and gilded statues of Sainte-Anne, Sainte-Marguerite and Sainte-Catherine, so often reproduced by the woodcarvers of the Middle Ages. There were linen chests, bound in iron, studded with great nails, and covered with sowskin leather then there were coffers fastened by great metal clasps and overlaid with leather or fabric on which fair-faced angels cut from illuminated missile backgrounds had been mounted there were great beds reached by carpeted steps there were tasselled pillows and counterpanes heavily perfumed and canopies and curtains embroidered with armouries or sprinkled with stars so one must reconstruct the decorations of the other rooms in which nothing was standing but the walls and the high basket-funnelled fireplaces whose spacious hearths wanting andirons were still charred from the old fires one could easily imagine the dining-rooms and those terrible repasts which gilles deplored in his trial at nantes gilles admitted with tears that he had ordered his diet so as to kindle the fury of his senses and these reprobate menus can be easily reproduced when he was at table with Eustache blanchet prelati gilles de sillier and all his trusted companions in the great room the plates and the ewers filled with water of medlar rose and melilot for washing the hands were placed on credences gilles ate beef salmon and brim pies levert and squab tarts roast heron stork crane peacock bustard and swan venison in verdus nantes lampreys salads of brioni hops beard of judas mallow vehement dishes seasoned with marjoram and mace coriander and sage peony and rosemary basil and hyssop grain of paradise and ginger perfumed acidulous dishes giving one a violent thirst heavy pastries tarts of elderflower and rape rice with milk of hazelnuts sprinkled with cinnamon stuffy dishes necessitating copious draughts of beer and fermented mulberry juice of dry wine or wine aged tannic bitterness Of heady hypocras charged with cinnamon with almonds and with musk of raging liquors clouded with golden particles mad drinks which spurred the guests in this womanless castle to frenzies of lechery and made them at the end of the meal writhe in monstrous dreams remain the costumes to be restored said durtal to himself and he imagined gilles and his friends not in their damaskined field harness but in their indoor costumes their robes of peace he visualized them in harmony with the luxury of their surroundings they wore glittering vestments pleated jackets bellying out and a little flounced skirt at the waist the legs were encased in dark skin-tight hose on their heads were the artichoke chaperon hats like that of charles the seventh in his portrait in the louvre the torso was enveloped in silver-threaded damask which was crusted with jewelries and bordered with marten. He thought of the costume of the women of the time robes of precious tented stuffs with tight sleeves great collars thrown back over the shoulders cramping bodices long trains lined with fur and as he thus dressed an imaginary mannequin, hanging ropes of heavy stones purplish or milky crystals cloudy uncut gems over the slashed corsage a woman slipped in filled the robe swelled the bodice and thrust her head under the two-horned steeple headdress From behind the pendant lace smiled the composite features of the unknown and of Madame Chantelouve. Delighted, he gazed at the apparition without ever perceiving whom he had evoked. When his cat, jumping into his lap, distracted his thoughts and brought him back to his room. Well, well, she won't let me alone, and in spite of himself, he began to laugh at the thought of the unknown following him even to the Chateau de Tiffauges. It's foolish to let my thoughts wander this way, he said, drawing himself up but daydream is the only good thing in life everything else is vulgar and empty no doubt about it that was a singular epoch the middle epoch of ignorance and darkness the history professors and ages he went on lighting a cigarette for some it's all white and for others utterly black no intermediate shade atheists reiterate dolorous and exquisite epoch say the artists and the religious savants what is certain is that the immutable classes the nobility the clergy the bourgeoisie the people had loftier souls at that time you can prove it society has done nothing but deteriorate in the four centuries separating us from the middle ages true a baron then was usually a formidable brute he was a drunken and lecherous bandit a sanguinary and boisterous tyrant but he was a child in mind and spirit The church bullied him, and to deliver the holy sepulchre he sacrificed his wealth, abandoned home, wife and children, and accepted unconscionable fatigues, extraordinary sufferings, unheard of dangers. By pious heroism he redeemed the baseness of his morals. The race has since become moderate. It has reduced, sometimes even done away with, its instincts of carnage and rape. But it has replaced them by the monomania of business, the passion for lucre. It has done worse. It has sunk to such a state of abjectness as to be attracted by the doings of the lowest of the low. The aristocracy disguises itself as a mountebank, puts on tights and spangles, gives public trapeze performances, jumps through hoops, and does weightlifting stunts in the trampled tan-bark ring. The clergy, then a good example, if we accept a few convents ravaged by frenzied Satanism and lechery, launched itself into superhuman transports and attained God saints swarmed miracles multiplied and while still omnipotent the church was gentle with the humble it consoled the afflicted defended the little ones and mourned or rejoiced with the people of low estate Today, it hates the poor and mysticism dies in a clergy which checks ardent thoughts and preaches sobriety of mind continence of postulation common sense in prayer bourgeoisie of the soul Yet here and there, buried in cloisters far from these lukewarm priests, there perhaps still are real saints who weep, monks who pray, to the point of dying of sorrow and prayer, for each of us. And they, with the demoniacs, are the sole connecting link between that age and this. The smug, sententious side of the bourgeoisie already existed in the time of Charles Seventh, but cupidity was repressed by the confessor. And the tradesman, just like the labourer, was maintained by the corporations, which denounced overcharging and fraud, saw that decried merchandise was destroyed, and fixed a fair price and a high standard of excellence for commodities. Trades and professions were handed down from father to son. The corporations assured work and pay. People were not, as now, subject to the fluctuations of the market and the merciless capitalistic exploitation great fortunes did not exist and everybody had enough to live on sure of the future unhurried they created marvels of art whose secret remains forever lost all the artisans who passed the three degrees of apprentice journeyman and master developed subtlety and became veritable artists they ennobled the simplest of ironwork the commonest faience the most ordinary chests and coffers those corporations putting themselves under the patronage of saints whose images frequently besought figured on their banners preserved through the centuries the honest existence of the humble and notably raised the spiritual level of the people whom they protected all that is decisively at an end the bourgeoisie has taken the place forfeited by a wastrel nobility which now subsists only to set ignoble fashions and whose sole contribution to our civilization is the establishment of gluttonous dining-clubs so-called gymnastic societies and pari-mutual associations to-day the business man has but these aims to exploit the working-man manufacture shoddy lie about the quality of merchandise and give short weight as for the people, they have been relieved of the indispensable fear of hell, and notified at the same time that they are not to expect to be recompensed after death for their sufferings here. So they scamp their ill-paid work and take to drink. From time to time, when they have ingurgitated two violent liquids, they revolt, and then they must be slaughtered, for once let loose they would act as a crazed, stampeded herd. Good God, what a mess! And to think that the nineteenth century takes on airs and adulates itself there is one word in the mouths of all progress progress of whom progress of what for this miserable century hasn't invented anything great it has constructed nothing and destroyed everything at the present hour it glorifies itself in this electricity which it thinks it discovered but electricity was known and used in remotest antiquity and if the ancients could not explain its nature nor even its essence the moderns are just as incapable of identifying that force which conveys the spark and carries the voice acutely nasalized along the wire this century thinks it discovered the terrible science of hypnotism which the priests and brahmins in egypt and india knew and practised to the utmost now the only thing this century has invented is the sophistication of products therein it is past master it has even gone so far as to adulterate excrement yes In 1888, the two houses of Parliament had to pass a law destined to suppress the falsification of fertilizer. Now that's the limit. The doorbell rang. He opened the door and nearly fell over backward. Madame Chantelouve was before him. Stupefied, he bowed while Madame Chantelouve, without a word, went straight into the study. There she turned around and Durtal, who had followed, found himself face to face with her would you please sit down he advanced an armchair and hastened to push back with his foot the edge of the carpet turned up by the cat he asked her to excuse the disorder she made a vague gesture and remained standing in a calm but very low voice she said it is i who wrote you those mad letters i have come to drive away this bad fever and get it over with in a quite frank way as you yourself wrote no liaison between us is possible Let us forget what has happened, and before I go, tell me that you bear me no grudge." He cried out at this. He would not have it so. He had not been beside himself when he wrote her those ardent pages. He was in perfectly good faith. He loved her. "'You love me? Why, you didn't even know that those letters were from me. You loved an unknown, a chimera. Well, admitting that you are telling the truth, the chimera does not exist now, for here I am you are mistaken i knew perfectly that it was madame chantelouve hiding behind the pseudonym of madame maubel and he half explained to her without of course letting her know of his doubts how he had lifted her mask ah she reflected blinking her troubled eyes at any rate she said again facing him squarely you could not have recognized me in the first letters to which you responded with cries of passion those cries were not addressed to me he contested this observation and became entangled in the dates and happenings and in the sequence of the notes she at length lost the thread of his remarks the situation was so ridiculous that both were silent then she sat down and burst out laughing her strident shrill laugh revealing magnificent but short and pointed teeth in a mocking mouth vexed him she has been playing with me he said to himself And dissatisfied with the turn the conversation had taken, and furious at seeing this woman so calm, so different from her burning letters, he asked in a tone of irritation, Am I to know why you laugh? Pardon me. It's a trick my nerves play on me, sometimes in public places. But never mind. Let us be reasonable and talk things over. You tell me you love me. And I mean it. Well, admitting that I too am not indifferent, where is this going to lead us? Oh, you know so well, you poor dear, that you refused right at first the meeting which I asked in a moment of madness, and you gave well-thought-out reasons for refusing. But I refused because I did not know then that you were the woman in the case. I have told you that it was several days later that Des Hermies unwittingly revealed your identity to me. Did I hesitate as soon as I knew? No. I immediately implored you to come that may be but you admit that i'm right when i claim that you wrote your first letters to another and not me she was pensive for a moment durtal began to be prodigiously bored by this discussion he thought it more prudent not to answer and was seeking a change of subject that would put an end to the deadlock she herself got him out of his difficulty let us not discuss it any more she said smiling we shall not get anywhere You see this is the situation i am married to a very nice man who loves me and whose only crime is that he represents the rather insipid happiness which one has right at hand i started this correspondence with you so i am to blame and believe me on his account i suffer you have work to do beautiful books to write you don't need to have a crazy woman come walking into your life so you see the best thing is for us to remain friends but true friends and go no further And it is the woman who wrote me such vivid letters, who now speaks to me of reason, good sense, and God knows what? But be frank now, you don't love me. I don't. He took her hands, gently. She made no resistance, but looking at him squarely, she said, Listen, if you had loved me, you would have come to see me, and yet for months you haven't tried to find out whether I was alive or dead. But you understand that I could not hope to be welcomed by you on the terms we now are on and two in your parlour there are guests your husband i have never had you even a little bit to myself at your home he pressed her hands more tightly and came closer to her she regarded him with her smoky eyes in which he now saw that dolent almost dolorous expression which had captivated him he completely lost control of himself before this voluptuous and plaintive face but with a firm gesture she freed her hands enough sit down now and let's talk of something else you know, your apartment is charming. Which saint is that? she asked, examining the picture over the mantel of the monk on his knees beside a cardinal's hat and cloak. I do not know. I will find out for you. I have the lives of all the saints at home. It ought to be easy to find out about a cardinal who renounced the purple to go live in a hut. Wait, I think Saint Peter Damien did, but I'm not sure. I have such a poor memory. Help me think. But I don't know who he is she came closer to him and put her hand on his shoulder are you angry at me i should say i am when i desire you frantically when i've been dreaming for a whole week about this meeting you come here and tell me that all is over between us that you do not love me she became demure but if i did not love you would i have come to you understand then that reality kills a dream that it is better for us not to expose ourselves to fearful regrets we are not children you see no let me go do not squeeze me like that very pale she struggled in his embrace i swear to you that i will go away and that you shall never see me again if you do not let me loose her voice became hard she was almost hissing her words he let go of her sit down there behind the table do that for me and tapping the floor with her heel she said in a tone of melancholy then it is impossible to be friends only friends with a man but it would be very nice to come and see you without having evil thoughts to fear wouldn't it she was silent then she added yes just to see each other and if we did not have any sublime things to say to each other it is also very nice to sit and say nothing then she said my time is up i must go home and leave me with no hope he exclaimed kissing her gloved hands she did not answer but gently shook her head then as he looked pleadingly at her she said listen if you will promise to make no demands on me and to be good i will come here night after next at nine o'clock he promised whatever she wished and as he raised his head from her hands and as his lips brushed lightly over her breast which seemed to tighten She disengaged her hands, caught his nervously and, clenching her teeth, offered her neck to his lips. Then she fled. Oof, he said, closing the door after her. He was at the same time satisfied and vexed. Satisfied because he found her enigmatic, changeful, charming. Now that he was alone he recalled her to memory he remembered her tight black dress her fur cloak the warm collar of which had caressed him as he was covering her neck with kisses he remembered that she wore no jewelry except sparkling blue sapphire eardrops he remembered the wayward blonde hair escaping from under the dark green otter hat holding his hands to his nostrils he sniffed again the sweet and distant odor cinnamon lost among stronger perfumes which he had caught from the contact of her long fawn-colored suede gloves and he saw again her moist rodent teeth her thin bitten lips and her troubled eyes of a grey and opaque lustre which could suddenly be transfigured with radiance oh night after next it will be great to kiss all that vexed also both with himself and with her he reproached himself with having been brusque and reserved he ought to have shown himself more expansive and less restrained but it was her fault for she had abashed him the incongruity between the woman who cried with voluptuous suffering in her letters and the woman he had seen so thoroughly mistress of herself in her coquetries was truly too much however you look at them these women are astonishing creatures he thought here is one who accomplishes the most difficult thing you can imagine coming to a man's room after having written him excessive letters i i act like a goose i stand there ill at ease she in a second has the self-assurance of a person in her own home or visiting in a drawing-room no awkwardness pretty gestures a few words and eyes which supply everything she isn't very agreeable he thought reminded of the curt tone she had used when disengaging herself and yet she has her tender spots he continued dreamily remembering not so much her words as certain inflections of her voice and a certain bewildered look in her eyes i must go about it prudently that night he concluded addressing his cat which never having seen a woman before had fled at the arrival of madame chantelouve and taken refuge under the bed but had now advanced almost grovelling to sniff the chair where she had sat come to think of it she is an old hand madame hyacinthe she would not have a meeting in a cafe nor in the street she scented from afar the assignation house or the hotel and though from the mere fact of my not inviting her here she could not doubt that i did not want to introduce her to my lodging She came here deliberately. Then this first denial, come to think of it, is only a fine farce. If she were not seeking a liaison, she would not have visited me. No, she wanted me to beg her to do what she wanted to do. Like all women, she wanted me to offer her what she desired. I have been rolled. Her arrival has knocked the props out from under my whole method. But what does it matter? She is no less desirable," he concluded happy to get rid of disagreeable reflections and plunge back into the delirious vision which he retained of her that night won't be exactly dreary he thought seeing again her eyes imagining them in surrender deceptive and plaintive as he would disrobe her and make a body white and slender warm and supple emerge from her tight skirt she has no children that is an earnest promise that her flesh is quite firm even at thirty a whole draught of youth intoxicated him. Durtal, astonished, took a look at himself in the mirror. His tired eyes brightened, his face seemed more youthful, less worn. Lucky I had just shaved, he said to himself. But gradually, as he mused, he saw in this mirror, which he was so little in the habit of consulting, his features droop and his eyes lose their sparkle. His stature, which had seemed to increase in this spiritual upheaval, diminished again. Sadness returned to his thoughtful mien. I haven't what you would call the physique of a lady's man, he concluded. What does she see in me? For she could very easily find someone else with whom to be unfaithful to her husband. Enough of these rambling thoughts. Let's cease to think them. To sum up the situation, I love her with my head and not my heart. That's the important thing. Under such conditions, whatever happens, a love affair is brief, and I am almost certain to get out of it without committing any follies. End of chapter 8